Jean McNeil, tell us where we are and what's going on. You're in charge. Yikes, yikes, Simon. Well, you've come to the wrong person because I do know the Barbican quite well, but it is such a labyrinth here. I have to say, I still don't know where I'm going and I've got a really good sense of direction. So I hope we're going to go to the left and then we're going to find some coffee. I see where we're going. I know where we're going. We're going over there. Again, fellow travellers, welcome to the 117th podcast of our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder, and me, Mick Webb. And today, after many false starts, we are going to tackle the knotty topic of psychogeography. And fortunately, as you might have guessed, we have someone here to help untangle those knots, writer and academic Jean McNeil. Hello, Jean. How lovely to meet you up here on the roof of London's Barbican building, where we have eventually got hold of that coffee. Yes. Hi, Mick. Hi, Simon. I'm um, now coffeeed up. I've eaten half a croissant. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Well, thank goodness for that. Before we get on to uh, psychogeography, I need to mention a tweet from listener Andy Nash. You might recall um, musings in the last podcast about the Bielefeld conspiracy, the theory that Germany's 18th largest city doesn't actually exist. Luckily, Andy can reassure us that it does. Um, He says, I visited a friend from the university who lived there in 1993. (laughs) I would point out that was nearly 30 years ago, Andy, and it may not exist now. But he says, at the time, his mum had a car with the perfect Bielefeld registration. Now, for this, you need to know that the first, generally, the first two letters of a city's name are used to um, uh, begin the registration. And this was B-I, which you would expect, and then E-R, in other words, German for beer. And Andy also sent a very good picture of the hanging tram of Wuppertal that you can see on our Twitter feed. You should have BT. Jean, can I just ask, have you been to the elusive Bielefeld and have you seen the dangling tram of Wuppertal? I haven't. That's such an interesting concept. German cities, which should exist, but might not. (laughs) (laughs) It's supposedly, uh, Jean, uh, we did reveal last week, it's supposed to be a satire on um, conspiracy theories, if you see what I mean. So the conspiracy theory that Bielefeld doesn't exist is a satirical um, invention. And that's what you say. They say that. Ah, anyway, that, anyway uh, and, and moving, moving on swiftly. Moving on swiftly. Um, and I must say, I hadn't actually realised what the joke was until you pointed it out, that it is actually the German for beer, B-I-E-R. But um, I am a bit slow this morning. Um, but let's get on to psychogeography, which, um, to my mind, uh, Jean, does have something in common with the Bielefeld. Uh, does it really exist? And if so, what is it? Well... I guess we have to think, how do we define things that exist and things that don't exist? I mean, it does exist in that enough writers, very kind of very um, well thought of, but well regarded writers have have kind of written it into existence, I would say. But then also in some more esoteric belief systems, you could argue, or atavistic belief systems, people have always thought that the land has energies. The land actually speaks to you if you know how to listen to it. So I think it comes from that. But if you'd like me to define it, psychogeography means the effect of a geographical location on the emotion and behavior of individuals. Ah, so it can be anywhere. 
It can or absolutely everywhere. be anywhere, but it tends to be related to urban environments, exactly like the one in which we sit now. And yeah. what is this urban environment saying to you? What energy are you getting from it? Well, yeah, that's a really good question because I was just thinking I did come here a lot during the pandemic, during what most people call lockdown, but I don't like the word, so I'll avoid using lockdown. But anyway, the Barbican was kind of almost like a, a, a beating heart, although a kind of depopulated beating heart. It was very strange. Mostly it was closed. There was nobody around. But it was almost as if, you know, drawn here like a bit of like an air's rock, an urban air's rock. It's like, let's go to the heart of the city or what used to be the city where culture and everyday life used to be melded in this fascinating melange, you know, and and see and, and try to re-encounter that. So I think this there is a kind of heartbeat here and it makes sense because actually where we're at the Barbican is on the site of Londinium of the walled city and Cripplegate in particular was over there which was the northern gate to the to the city oh, right. so actually the yeah. Barbican technically um, stands right outside the what was once the city wall so this is actually where London began but but in terms of where psychogeography began I mean I've read a little bit about it and I did study French literature quite a long time ago and um, it seems that um, uh, the great poet Baudelaire had quite a lot to do with the, the roots of this, um, uh, this subject because he was very keen on the idea of the le flaneur, um, somebody who just basically um, wandered through the city um, and um, experienced it in some poetic way, um, certainly not shopping, certainly not looking at um, tourist uh, uh, iconic places, but getting something extra out of it. Is, is that, does that still kind of um, exist, that idea? Of yes, I think it does. And I think it's, but it's very, I think we're beginning to deconstruct a little bit the conditions that make that kind of psychogeography possible. So you're absolutely right. It has its kind of origins in the 19th century in French writers like Rimbaud and Baudelaire, but also in Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, used to do a bit of psycho psychogeography, William Blake, um, oh, yeah. Walter Benjamin latterly in, in, in which, before his death in the, in the 1930s. So it became something also of a kind of political exploration. But initially, you could argue that if you're going to wander around cities, you have to be a number of things. One, you have to have the time and the money. You're either going to be very poor or very well off to be able to wander around cities. Um, and the conclusions you draw will be, I think, quite different. You have to be a man in that women moving through cities, like Rebecca Solnit has written when she was starting to research and write her book Wanderlust on walking, and she was doing this in, in San Francisco, she was told, well, you know, you must put on baggy clothes, you must cut your hair, you know, you have to basically not be a woman to wander around the city safely. And she said, well, what is this? Is this going back to Assyrian veils and uh, walled cities? And so to an extent, a certain number of factors need to be in place. But now we can see that actually walking through the city in, and claiming it for your own psyche and listening to what it might be saying to you beyond the kind of bright lights of capitalism and the various lures um, of, of commerce, what you know that that is actually a political project while Mick was studying French literature I was unfortunately doing maths and therefore I need you to help us Jean understand what's in it for the average traveler how is it going to improve our experience 
Yeah, okay, that's a very good question. I think, um, first of all, I think psychogeography is something that you can do anywhere, in a city or in the countryside. But it's, I think, about being alert to what the land, as I say, is saying to you. For example, why you walk down one street and not the other, why you feel a bit hemmed in and claustrophobic and perhaps even a sort of sense of the sinister in one place, and why you feel attracted to or enlivened by a particular confluence of streets or rivers or trees the, you know the land actually does have a voice and to an extent I think a consciousness now I can't prove that and many people would say well that's a very esoteric belief but many 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 people believe this it's only actually Western civilization capitalism post enlightenment civilization that that has banished that thought I think in cities that however that voice of the land is somewhat muffled and complicated like I was saying to you earlier where we sit now you to be 20 meters lower than it is and it used to be a kind of floodplain even though people were living there so they must have had to get out of their houses and <laughs> kind of put their sheep on the on the verge you know somehow but um so land changes a huge amount in cities and it's overlain by by history and basically we're walking with ghosts there's so many people here so many people still kicking around I think on some level or the residual kind of memory of them or our sort of sixth sense that they once existed but you know you you have to be very I suppose in a particular frame of mind to be open to that. Well I wanted to ask you whether uh, if you set out to do a bit of psychogeography or psychogeographical um, research or to experience it anyway. Can you use a map? Because I read somewhere um, that uh, what you should do is pack your Mac. Uh, and <laughs> pack, <laughs> pack your map and your Mac, but then leave home, hang on to your Mac, obviously if you're in London, but throw the map in the first bin you see and then just head off somewhere random to where something takes you. Is that Fair enough. I think um, that's the sort of classic kind of 20th century, 20, early 21st century psychogeography as practiced so brilliantly by Ian Sinclair. But I think, you know, there, in, in his work, I should say, let me just say what he does, I think, which is quite unique, is he uses the city to riff off of all sorts of different types of thoughts and considerations and, you know, history, politics, the self, desire, you know, it's, it's he uses the city as a kind of scaffold. Um, and... I think yes, but you need to know where you're going to a certain extent or oh, have a plan. Do you need to In have his a... work, he always has a plan, oh. I think it's fair to say. Um, but he allows himself to be deviated from that plan. But now we're so directed and instrumentalized by these tracking devices that we call smartphones that, you know, very few people, I think, wander around in that kind of aleatory way anymore. And actually, even if you think, if you think you're wandering, you're not. You're being directed to a particular flower market because you want a particular lifestyle that's associated with the flower market or you want something from a shop. What's really interesting is trying to wander around cities which are not particularly capitalist, like Havana and Cuba, and then you become, like there's hardly any shops, you know, even now. And so then you become very aware of the kind of architecture of the city, because you're not being constantly, you know, as I said before, lured or allured, you know, into these traps. And, and you haven't. Oh, oh, there we go. Oh, that's, a, oh, no, that's a very I'm just fine. Gonna, uh, There's the ghost. There's the, the, ghost the wind has bar. just blown yeah. my script all over the barbican. Oh, Excuse dear. me, I'm just going to go and find it. Go on. Yeah. You keep doing this. Keep is a very, this is a very psychogeographic <laughs> moment. There goes Mick looking for. Oh, goodness. <laughs>
Uh, well, look, well, well, Mick um, runs around the... Uh, oh, hang on, there's another one gone. We've lost another one, Mick. <laughs> right, uh, this is very funny. Um, so, the, Mick had, has all his research notes, like a very good... Um, uh, uh, producer, presenter, um, have we a very kind of a chap, uh, probably a, a visitor, a tourist, has yeah. just has just um, brought back page two of the script. Right. That's okay. all there is. But but, you, but but this is very suitably random because Mick's got dozens of pieces of paper yeah, which well, are now in completely different order. Is that, are, are you approving of this? I think so. I think we should just mix them up. The old David oh, Bowie no, kind of yeah. cut up your notes and see, put it but all together again. You see yeah. what <clears> I wanted to do here, but when when the wind um, decided to uh, interfere with my uh, plan, um, was to find a bit of Ian Sinclair, who mm. you quoted earlier as being a kind of top psychogeographer, mm. um, uh, be because you kindly sent me a uh, chapter of his, and I'm just now trying to find uh, well, let, let, let me, can I, can I take a, a, a bus interlude with, with, with Jean here at this stage? You, you sort out your papers. Yeah, and I've got, yeah give me so, a moment. Yeah. While coming to, well, here, here's my issue. While coming to meet you this morning, I deliberately did some random travel, I stood between two bus stops in West London and either would get me to a station where I could get to meet you and fail to find some coffee. Um, and it happened that a 423 came along first. So I went all the way to Hatton Cross on this bus upstairs <laughs> and got the most astonishing, better than plane spotting view of Heathrow Airport. I, it seemed that there was a, a Virgin Atlantic Airbus A350 coming in to land on top of the bus. <laughs> oh, it was very so nice. exciting. Nice is, that, is that what I should be doing more of? I would say abandon yourself to the crowd, Simon. That is but what Walter Benjamin it, it says. You have to <laughs> abandon yourself to the crowd. I mean, he was thinking the crowd is in cities. But actually just let things go and let things happen. And there's an element of fate in it, perhaps. You were meant to have that fantastic view of Heathrow this morning for some reason which we will only know in the future maybe how will we know <laughs> you will know you will know yeah mm, it will okay. come to you thank you <laughs> well look that's very good while you were talking I managed to find the quote that I wanted to read from uh, Ian Sinclair's um, it's lights out for the territory it's chapter eight lights out for the territory yeah <laughs> the territory. Yeah. chapter yeah. eight and this is this is um, part of a a meander that he does with uh, some other guy uh, through a part of the world where I gather Stoke Newington, where you're. It you, just you happens live. to be where I happens. live. So it's yeah, quite, so yeah. you know it well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thought this was quite interesting. The new country off-license and food store in Kingsland Road is a typically modest venture. Green vegetables racked on the street. The middle classes nipping furtively across the road from De Beauvoir Town for halva and olives. Three or four men no women chatting behind the counter. A 29-year-old shop assistant, Ali Ozturk, was standing in the doorway when he was shot. The event was scarcely national news, but it made a splash in the Hackney Gazette, who suggested that Mr Ozturk was the victim of a hitman or team of hitmen dispatched from Ankara by the secret police. The local journalist, with evident ambitions to become the next Frederick Forsyth, pictured the assassin squatting Dallas-style in the flats opposite, waiting for his moment. To sustain this, it was necessary to find a more significant target. The shop's owner, Mafiz Bostanchi, a vigorous campaigner on trade union rights and a senior figure at the Halgevi Turkish Centre in Stoke Newington, was the intended martyr. No shot was heard, no gunman seen. The incident 
made no particular impression on drifters cruising for kebabs, curries, battered cod, rice and peas. Was that a characteristic thing of I I think that actually it, it what it shows is that what Sinclair is doing is um, a number of things in terms of his practice of writing he's following his nose or following his emotions but he also knows a great deal about the city there's a, a lot of research that's being done before and after but it's about I think remaking space also through language and reinterpreting space through language I mean just notice his adjective there um, uh, well, technically adverb, I suppose, nipping furtively. The middle class is nipping furtively across the street. I mean, that's really quite brilliant because you see there's a sort of sense of judgment there. Like, what, what is it about the middle classes that makes them so furtive um, to get their halva and their, you, you know, there's that, that, that um, almost like lifestyle journalist kind of BDI that he has for what people betray of themselves in that how they do things. Um, so he's alive, I guess what I'm uh, wanting to say is both to the built environment, to the city, and its latent meanings, and also to the kind of human traffic that moves through it. But isn't it really um, just good travel journalism, if you see what I mean, or good travel writing? Or is there something more to it than that? Because it strikes me sort of lots of, you know, good observation and uh, off the beaten track kind of stuff is, is what lots of travel writers do uh, they don't possibly do it in the same areas I mean they tend to do it in foreign countries that people don't know at all but it's a sort of change of focus from that that's very similar I think the impulse might be similar but I think that the kind of linguistic genius that Sinclair has and the way that he's again using language in really quite unexpected ways to help you see something anew or see something the way that he sees. So I think it actually supersedes travel writing and that travel writing is about interpreting a place for people, kind of anticipating their desire to go there. But Sinclair is actually rereading the city. So it's, it's, I think they're quite different purposes, both aesthetic purposes and commercially different, different purposes. I'm inferring from this, and I don't know if it's fair, Jean, that you're saying Actually, yes, the world is vast and fascinating, but um, even in a suburb of London like N16, Stoke Newington, you can find your own world. And if you have a guide like Ian Sinclair, you can um, enjoy the, 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 the different dimensions, whether that's Turkish people, Jewish people or whatever, and their, their civilization. So should we give up going places? Well, that's true. We could do a little bit of psychogeography at home. But then again, I suppose we've just come through a period where, although I, 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 I did travel quite a lot, but, but which we were forced to, um, I suppose, turn our gaze for better or for worse on our local environments. All places are very different, clearly. But what we tend to do is we valorize the unfamiliar for good reason, because the unfamiliar makes you wake up. It makes you think, okay, you know, I don't know what's going on here. I need to pay attention. So you become almost like that three-year-old child again. And that's one of the pleasures of traveling, is that you go to kind of have your senses sharpened and to be enlivened and be surprised and challenged. Um, but you can do that too at home, I think. Yes. But there is a kind of interesting lesson for all of us, even if we're not um, great writers, that actually you can get a huge amount out of not very much, if you see what I mean. You don't need to necessarily um, uh, rush around seeing 
all the top things for your bucket list. You could just walk quietly around in one place and 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 look in depth at a few things and get a lot uh, get a huge amount out of it while traveling you can it probably takes a bit more energy and a bit more ingenuity because we've learned to kind of blank out our our own environment again through necessity um, because we're just often coming and going but yes absolutely I agree but it's the level of attention, I guess, that we're thinking about here. It's, it's, it, it calls us, it demands from us a level of attention that we have to be ready to, to give, I think. Now, um, I need to ask, Jean, do you take holidays in the normal way? I tend not to really take holidays. I'm one of those writers who I go places to write about them or to research things or for personal reasons. Um, But sometimes I do take a holiday and sometimes I do. I am attracted to the kind of bizarre and the far-flung and the sort of hard scrabble. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a test for you here. Mm. Supposing, and sadly this won't happen, but supposing I could give you a ticket to... Anywhere, let's say, in Europe, perhaps somewhere you've not been before, Mm. um, where would you choose and what would you do when you got there, assuming your flight took off, which um, clearly these days (laughs) it might not. (laughs) No, these days it's a bit of a challenge, you know, if if you can get there. Um, Yeah, that, I, you know, I don't know Greece very well. I do know one island, which is kind of a bit idiosyncratic and really eccentric and wonderful called Skyros, which is in the Sporadis. So I would probably go to Crete simply because I haven't been there. It looks amazing. Very wild, which I always like. Um, Good walking. And it's a sort of southern periphery, perhaps, of Europe, you could argue. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very curious about Greece. I would go Greece. And if you go to beautiful Crete, you've got uh, Iraklion and just outside the astonishing Minoan uh, complex, palace complex at um, uh, Knossos. Mm. Would you go there or would you be wandering around the back streets of Iraklion seeing what, uh, what, what happens? I have to say I'd be greedy and do both because <laughs> I'm one of those people who I love cities, even if they're really ugly cities and nobody likes them. They're like, what, what are you going to <laughs> But I like cities, but I also like wildernesses. What I'm not very good at is the places in between, like suburbia or provincial cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing personal against those cities, but it's just me, you know, I'm, so I'm good in extremes. Oh, can I ask you, if you don't mind, I mean, I know that you went on a holiday or a trip anyway to northern Spain, which is mainly kind of really lovely countryside uh, if I remember rightly did you get out into that and uh, or was that not why you were there yes no no it is I mean I I wouldn't so for example it's in Catalonia so yes it's northern Spain but it's northern Catalonia and um, the place I go is a very little known place actually um, not far from Caracas which is very much better Mm. known and uh, it's on the Cap de Creos Peninsula, oh, great yeah, walking, yeah. very elemental. It's almost like you're in the film Stromboli, you know, by Roberto mm. Rossellini. Oh, yes. It's very kind yeah. of volcanic and outcroppings in the middle of the granite and basalt, and you know, it's it's great for walking and looking at rocks and trees, and it's quite wild. So that's where I go. But I've been going there for years. So yeah, yeah, I do a bit of walking, a bit of swimming, yeah. And and just uh, to put, help people with their own um, psychogeography of where this place is, you are very close to the French border just south of Perpignan, north of Girona, and it is a really quite substantial peninsula at the top of what I think we still call the Costa Brava. Is yeah, that roughly uh, right? absolutely. Yeah. But it's not as built up as the Costa Brava. No, <laughs> it, no, it is absolutely lovely. But I have a quick question, which is, um, why can't 
psychogeography, as you've um, so eloquently and elegantly described it. Why can't it be done on a bike? Um, and, uh, we've all come here on bikes um, from a bus, which Simon was doing earlier, or just wandering in the countryside. Is it, does it have to be urban? No, it doesn't have to be urban. But I think, again, the thing about cities is that the kind of challenge is to listen to the city or listen to the land, despite all the kind of hectic stuff that's going on around oh, you. I you and mean. I think, can it be done not walking? Yes, but walking, there's something very odd about walking. It has the same sort of rhythm as thinking. And also, I think it has to do with the lateral eye movement. There's something that neurologically walking is very good for thinking. You know that great... Uh, ah. Latin adage, solvatur ambulando, Ambula, yeah. which is, it is solved by walking, which there's something about just the, the, the motion of putting your legs one in front of the other and the lateral eye movement, the thinking, and the, that it's, it's very interpretive somehow walking. And cycling is okay, but if you think about it, you're actually not on the ground. You've got rubber between the ground and you, so you're not perhaps as attuned. And yeah. if you're on the railways, obviously they are running exactly uh, on the lines um, predicted, as are um, the aircraft, which occasionally are flying over us on their very well-prescribed flight paths. Indeed, indeed. Well, what we have now in, in Britain is a certain amount of transport chaos, and we become hugely aware of how reliant we are on these various modes to get from A to B. And here we are cycling and walking everywhere. And there's a reason for that. I think I just, you know, you, you can't actually be too sure you're going to get from A to B. Unfortunately, we can't cycle from here to Cap de Creos, or you could, but you'd have to be very fit and you'd still have to get on a train. <laughs> <laughs> and, and can I ask about that? In the present um, chaotic context, um, a lot of people are contacting me very simply about their holidays and saying, I'm going to Spain in August on Ryanair or British Airways or EasyJet. I'm really apprehensive about it, which is very sad because people should be looking forward to their holidays, but they're not. Can you offer any psychogeographical words of advice, Jean? Well, I don't know if it's psychogeographical words of advice. My advice are, is go anyway because it's really, really important to have a change of scene and also to get out of the country, whatever country you're in. Otherwise, you become a kind of captive, basically, of the circumstance, of fear, of the government, of all sorts of things. And I flew a lot during the pandemic, and it was fantastic. It was scary at times um, because you didn't know what was going to happen. But there was nobody there. There's nobody there. It all went like clockwork. Yeah. Planes left early. <laughs> and now it is, it is pretty chaotic and daunting. But I would say just pack a few granola bars and go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Jean, I'm casting around on my smartphone for nearby supermarkets where I might stock up with granola bars. And um, you have very, very kindly uh, uh, helped us explore the Barbican. You've drifted down from um, Stoke Newington to meet us and um, we're very grateful for you to um, talk us through the theory and practice of psychogeography. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. So, psychogeographers unite. That's what I say. We'll have to all try it out, wherever we might be. Well, I'll certainly drink to that. And uh, next week, we're going to be discussing something you have just raised as a, as a topic, the new stress-filled, chaos-ridden face of travel. Well, that's certainly true if my recent trip to Tenerife was anything to go by. We'd be very pleased to hear about your um, particular uh, chaotic uh, adventures and, of course, your personal experiences of psychogeography. As always, you can tweet us at youshouldhavebt or why not go to anchor.fm forward slash youshouldhavebeenthere and leave an audio message. I'll echo Simon's thanks to Eugene and um, 
until next week from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much both. Bye. See you again soon, hopefully. I hope so. How the hell do we get out of here? (laughs) 